Hello and thank you folks for tuning in to another installment of a Federalist uh, Paper Podcast. Uh, we're going to be going over Federalist number 64 today. It's actually, uh, it's titled The Powers of the Senate. So we've been going over some Senate powers. This one specifically relates to uh, the Senate's ability in the formation, to partake in the formation of uh, treaties. Uh, it's written by James, or I'm sorry, it's written by John Jay who hasn't written one since some of the earlier papers. He was, like I've said before, he was sick during this period, so he was kind of on and off. I think he only really uh, wrote maybe three or four Federalist papers, and the majority were written by Hamilton and Madison. So it was written on March 5th, 1788. Topics include the Senate's ability to partake in the formation of treaties, intermixture of powers in conducting treaties for the safeguard of the people, uh, and everyone will be equally bound by these treaties, including the federal government and the federal government officials. And that's that's really the point is that every single law that's made also applies to federal officials as well as uh, their family members and the rest of the people themselves. So in this paper, John Jay, he defends the second, sex, the second section of the Constitution giving the president powers, and I quote, by and with the advice and consent of Senate to make treaties provided two-thirds of the senator's present a uh, present present concur end quote so next he he uh he details john jay he states and i quote the power of making treaties is an important one especially as it relates to war peace commerce and it should not be delegated by in such a mode and with such precautions as will afford the highest security that it will be exercised by men the best qualified for the purpose and in the manner most conducive to the public good End quote. So the reason that they go they go ahead with senators rather than House of Rep members, uh, senators provide more stability. They've been there longer. They're going to be older, so they're going to be more, uh, you know, informed on the issues, rather than having a House of Rep member and they're only running these two-year terms. The senators are running six-year terms, so they're a little bit more uh, stable for that reason. They're older once again, and you're going to need that two-thirds in the Senate to confer confirm any. Uh, any type of treaty. So he states the Constitution puts a special emphasis on the abilities and virtues of the most distinguished citizens to be selected for the position of senator. Uh, Jay states next, and I quote, by excluding men under 35 from the first office and those under 30 from the second, it confines the electors to men of whom the people have had time to form a judgment and with respect to whom they will not be liable to be deceived by those brilliant appearances of genius and patriotism which like transient meteors sometimes mislead as well as dazzle end quote it's very interesting so he's saying that the senators because they're older they're going to be um more experienced and they themselves won't be woed over by other people uh, that seem to have these brilliant appearances of genius and patriotism, uh, you know, the razzle-dazzle type behavior. Somebody that's younger may be more gullible to that. If you think about it, generally when you were younger, when you're in high school, whenever somebody tells you something, you always believe it. Or just when you're younger in a general sense, you usually believe it until you get that experience in life and you gain that experience and you realize that most likely those people are lying or what have you. Uh you know, additionally, which is interesting, if you actually sit here and you think about 
treaties like the Iran deal, for example, there was, the, it really isn't a treaty. The Iran deal, same thing with the Paris Climate Agreement. Those things are directly, both of them have been unconstitutional. They're not treaties. They're just these weird agreements that were made by the executive branch of our government at the time. And there really, there was no confirmation through the Senate. Therefore, they're really null and void. They're meaningless uh, to the people. So he continues next, and I quote, the president and senators so chosen will always be of the number of those who best understand our national interests, whether considered in relation to the several states or to the foreign nations who are best able to promote those interests and whose reputa reputation for integrity inspires and merits confidence with such men and power of making treaties may be safely lodged, end quote. So really he's building up this entire paper, pretty much he builds up the integrity uh, as well as the experience of our senators. So next, he, no he notes that the House of Representatives would be insufficient for this power because of the instability therein with their, you know, their every two-year terms. It's kind of infrequent. And, and they would have a lack of knowledge of national concerns because they don't have the same amount of political power. They're not going to be as old. They're not going to be as experienced in that position. So he ensures that under the longer term, the Senate will accumulate more knowledge and experience. He goes on to state, and I quote, they who wish to experience the power under consideration to a popular assembly comp composed of members constantly coming and going in quick succession seem not to recollect that such a body must necessarily be inadequate to the attainment of those great objects, which require to be steadily contemplated in all their relations and circumstances and which can only be approached and achieved by measures which not only talents but also exact information and often much time are necessary to concert and to execute end quote so once again he's just kind of reiterating that fact that the house of representatives aren't going to have uh, the amount of experience that's needed and they're not going to be have the same amount of stability because they have these almost like these imp these transient uh terms so then he goes on, he states next, and I quote, It was wise, therefore, in the convention to provide not only that the power of making treaties should be committed to able and honest men, but also that they should continue in place a sufficient time to become perfectly acquainted with our national concerns, and to form and introduce a system for the management of them. The duration prescribed is such as will give them an opportunity of greatly extending their political information and of rendering their accumulating experience more and more beneficial to their country. End quote. Well, once again, you're going to have these senators, they're going to be older, they're going to be more experienced, they're going to have some time to kind of learn the national interest, the national character of the country. Therefore, they're a much better vessel to hold this power of confirming uh, treaties than the House of Representatives would be. So next he goes on, he states, and I quote, Nor has the convention discovered less prudence in providing for the frequent elections of senators in such a way as to obviate the inconvenience of periodically transferring those great affairs entirely to new men. For by leaving a considerable residue of the old ones in place, uniformity and order as well as a constant succession of official information will be preserved, end quote. So he's saying, because we have these six-year terms, and we're also going to have infrequent elections. Let's say, you know, the way it's kind of set up now is every two years you're going to have an election for senators. But it's only going to be one-third of the entire senators in the country. So even if there is a complete shift and change every single two years, it's only going to be of one-thirds of the entire body of senators. Uh, 
uh, and and really that won't be the case. The incumbent might win, so you're you're really going to preserve a majority of your Senate every single time, no matter what. There is an election, and there will be uniformity and order in that because it will be mostly the same people. There'll be a couple little changes here, but they'll take direction from the people that are more experienced and uh, the veterans that are in the Senate. So another component of the proposed provision is the secrecy and immediate dispatch of the president to negotiate treaties that will facilitate the attainment of objects in foreign negotiations. And, and this is very, this is interesting in, in modern day today, in modern day times as well. So he goes on to state, and I quote, it seldom happens in, in the negotiation of treaties of whatever nation, but that perfect secrecy and immediate dispatch are sometimes requisite. These are cases where the most useful intelligence may be obtained. If the persons possessing it can be relieved from apprehensions of discovery, those apprehensions will operate on those persons, whether they are actuated by mercenary or friendly motives. And there doubtless are many of both descriptions who would rely on the secrecy of the president, but who would not confide in that of the Senate, and still less in that of a large popular assembly. The convention have done well, therefore, in so disposing of the power of making treaties that although the president must, informing them, act by the ad advice and consent of the Senate, yet he will be able to manage the business of intelligence in such a manner as prudence may suggest. Quote. So you really ask, what do you mean the president? The president's going to have a sense of secrecy, dispatches, meaning he can act quickly and swiftly in his, in his position, but he will have as a safeguard the Senate will be giving him their advice, their opinions, and then their consent to go through with these negotiations uh, to make the treaty official, but he can negotiate on himself independently as the president. So the point really of this, and, and this is this is relative to the way military power is used today, if you want to declare war, yes, you have to go through the Senate. Uh, if, if you want to you know, do a military strike or an attack, you don't have to go through the Congress every single time you want to do something like that. I want to say declaring war might require the Senate and the House members, but it might just be it might just be the Senate. I'm not 100% sure. We'll get to that, though, eventually when the powers of the president come up. But he, the, the real, and if you had to tell the president, and this is, you know, the the Democrats got mad, I think. Cause Trump, I remember Trump took out Qasem Soleimani and they were freaking out over it because he didn't ask them for their concurring opinion in a military interaction. And if that's the way that we have to go through things every single time we do any type of military action, we have to go through the Congress every single time, we would no longer, we would cease to exist because we would have our hands tied in every single altercation that we would have with the foreign nation. We would have to act, instead of acting proactively, we would have to act reactively. And by that time, it would all be over if that was the case. And that's kind of how it is relative here. Where you can, yeah, you can make these negotiations, you can talk about it, but to make it actual law in this country, make it apply to the country, the consensus, you have to go through the Congress, you have to go through the Senate in particular in this case. So once again, like I said, the Iran deal is a fake deal, as well as the Paris Climate Agreement is a fake deal. These are just international, especially the Paris Climate Agreement is just international councils that somehow determine what policy is in the United States. So you have people that live in Germany, you have people that live in Europe, you have people all over that the government officials over in Europe are making policy for the United States and the Paris Climate Agreement. That's what that was. Um, 
now the Iran deal, same thing. You have Iranians, you have an Iranian supreme leader that hates the death to America. They call them the death to America crowd because they chant death to America in their viral videos. He's making policy for the rest of the United States. He's taking your money. The government is rounding up, going around, rounding up your money and handing it over to the Iranian supreme leader. So that's why, to begin with, it's unconstitutional and it's also just immoral, simply. So Jay asserts that it is the power of the president to negotiate treaties under secrecy while hand handling intelligence that is requisite to the success of negotiations and he will seek advice and consent from the senate when needed jay claims that some are displeased with this provision because they view treaties as a force of law uh, which should be of the legislative authority uh, and and he goes on to debunk this theory pretty much making law in a general sense cannot exclusively only be of the legislative authority there has to be some sort of a co-mixture of powers or else the legislative authority would overthrow would just take all the powers away from the executive and the judiciary branch through execution of law over and over again they would just continue to make laws that would take more power away from the president take more power away from the uh, supreme court and just give it and just lay it all in one uh, body itself the congress so he goes on he states next and i quote all constitutional acts of power, whether in the executive or in the judicial department, have as much legal validity and obligation as if they proceeded from the legislature. And therefore, whatever name be given to the power of making treaties, or however obligatory they may be when made, certain it is that the people may, with much propriety, commit the power to a distinct body from the legislature, the executive, or the judicial. It surely does not follow that because they have given the power of making laws to the legislature, that therefore they should likewise give them the power to do every other act of sovereignty by which the citizens are to be bound and affected, end quote. So he's saying this power by the legislative branch to make law doesn't also give them the power to handle every other government function in the federal government. That's all that he's, he's saying there. Because like, And like I said, this is from kind of an out-of-the-box perspective. Well, not really, but the legislative branch had all the power to make any type of law and there was no intermingling there was no safeguard on that for the presidential veto or the supreme court the judicial branch to rule whether things are constitutional or not then you would just have the legislative authority making laws that were unconstitutional consistently breaking the constitution and taking more powers away from you taking powers away from the president and taking powers away from the judicial branch as well so Jay, he argues that all constitutional acts of power are balanced between the three branches and it is not the sole responsibility of the legislature. Others that agree with the proposal, uh, they, and they, and they state in that quote, insist and profess to believe that treaties like acts of assembly should be repealable at pleasure, end quote. So these people were thinking, these other people, yeah, okay, we agree with that, but we think that they should just be repealable at ple pleasure by the Senate itself, and that's it. So he goes on to state, he debunks that as well. He states, and I quote, But still let us not forget that treaties are made not by only one of the contracting parties, but by both. And consequently, that as the consent of both was essential to their formation at first, so must it ever afterwards be to alter or cancel them. The proposed Constitution, therefore, has not in the least extended the obligation of treaties, they are just as binding and just as far beyond the lawful reach of legislative acts now as they will be at any future period or under any form of government.
end quote. So he's kind of just going on to say, right now when you make a treaty, uh, it continues to exist, you would need that exact power to repeal that treaty that you needed to enact it instead of just saying, oh, it's repealable at will, we just have a new president and he just decides to repeal it. And that's kind of how executive orders go. It's just you have the president come in, he makes executive orders, he kind of makes law through him signing a sheet of paper, which is unconstitutional, but they continue to they continue to follow through with it, that it's okay somehow. They continue to rule that it's constitutional, but whatever. So he does that. And then the next president comes in, he repeals the entire thing. So really, he's just kind of saying you can't just have, because there's a couple changes, just one person repeal it or just, you know, just the Senate itself repeal it. It would have to be repealed by the exact same amount of power that it took to put that power in place itself. And then you also have to remember that you have, and I think he goes on to talk about this, how other nations are not going to bargain with you if it's that unstable of a system where it can be repealed on whim. So he states in a quote, it would be impossible to find a nation who would make any bargain with us, which should be binding on them absolutely, but on us only so long and so far as we may think proper to be bound by it, end quote. So it's kind of like when we have now these these foreign relations, especially with Israel, you had Trump that was hardcore pro-Israel. Now you kind of have a new administration that's, that's pro-Iran, wishy-washy on Israel. It's like no, no one's going to go forward with any treaties with your country if this is the way that it goes every single four years. If the power switches over and and then there's a capitulation to terrorists in Iran, no one's going to want to treat with us. The only reason people even, even form treaties or attempt to form treaties with the United States right now is because we are so powerful that they don't even care if it's unstable. That they just want that protection. If it's going to go on for four years, okay, we'll take the protection for four years. And then if the four years are up, we lost the protections. But guess what? We at least were able to kind of stay stable ourselves and build ourselves up for those four years. So next, Jay, Jay states that uh, a treaty is a bargain with another country. In order to get other countries willing to participate in that bargain, it needs to be a stable agreement. Therefore, treaties should be binding on both parties involved. In order to repeal these treaties, it would take the same amount of power it took to create them. Rather than just a quick legislative act, it would take the means of two-thirds of the Senate and the power of the president, like I said before. So next, he answers to his dissenters that there's these, the objectors, they think that two-thirds of the states will overpower the one-third of the state in terms of uh, treaties in the Senate. And also, additionally, I guess that would also be for any type of constitutional amendment, too. You would need those two-thirds. They think that somehow there's going to be two-thirds of the Senate that's going to overpower the other one-third. And he goes on to debunk that myth as well. He states, and I quote, As all the states are equally represented in the Senate, and by men the most able and the most willing to promote the interests of their constituents, they will all have an equal degree of influence in that body, especially while they continue to be careful in appointing proper persons and to insist on their punctual attendance. End quote. <clears throat> so he's saying these people, these, these Senate members are representative of the state leg legislature itself, the state governments, so they will represent each individual district that is within a state alone. I mean, they don't do that anymore. So they will have more obligation to the people. So they're not going to, most likely, they're not going to overthrow the people. But he continues to even go further ahead on this. He states, and I quote, In proportion, as the United States assume a national form and a national character, so will the good of the whole be more and more an object of attention. And the government must be a weak one indeed, if it should forget that the good of the whole 
can only be promoted by advancing the good of each of the parts or members which compose the whole. It will not be in the power of the President and Senate to make any treaties by which they, they and their families and estates will not be equally bound and affected with the rest of the community, end quote. So really what he's saying is, to make the United States stronger, to build it up, make it more robust, you're going to need those states. Uh, all states are going to have to do well. The parts make up the whole. So you're not going to have two-thirds of the Senate trying to overthrow the other one-third of the Senate because then all those states would then suck, thus making the United States suck as a whole. Uh, now, as the United States begins to form a national character, it will be more and more interested in the good of the whole rather than the few because the good of the whole is reliant on the parts of its members which compose the whole. So Madison, or rather, <clears throat> Jay concludes by alluding to the safeguard built into this provision. In the situation of a treaty that only benefit some states rather than all, he remarks, all states will be equally represented in the Senate and their interests will be promoted with an equal degree of influence. Which is important. I mean, if you really think about modern day today, right? Think around the country. Is there specific states that you think are almost unbearable and unlivable in? I can't really, th I could think of jurisdiction, I can think of cities or municipalities just because of the amount of crime, because they're run by Democrats that don't care about crime, they don't care about law and order, uh, they don't care about business, they don't care about people having jobs and making a decent, live, honest living, they don't care about any of that, so I can think of cities, I can think of specific municipalities where this is an actual problem, but there's no, the reason that it's unlivable, it's unbearable, conditions has nothing to do with the legislators that are trying to overthrow the power in, in the federal government but it's moreover it's not even really i would say the state government it's just a municipality it's it is the local government in that jurisdiction i mean state government probably has some sort of influence but probably nowhere near the state government if anything they're handing money to those municipalities that are having all these those issues if you look around the country the federal government hands out these grants to these suffering big cities that are run by Democrats straight into the ground. So you're taking money from successful people and then you're handing it over to people that are doing a terrible job instead of getting rid of the problem, which are the people that are in positions of power there. If you think about it like a corporation, that's how it would actually run. You get rid of the mid-level manager that is creating the problem or the conflict more than anything else, but that's not the way we do things. We just take the federal government money, we take a bunch of money from all the red states that are doing a good job in their governance, and we give it to the blue states and the blue uh, municipalities specifically. But this has nothing to do with the senators going after people. So, so what he's saying in this paper proves to be true. There's not like specific senators that are going after other states because there's really no state in the union where you go, oh man, that would be, that'd be, oh, that's a terrible place to live. It's unbearable, all this, that, the other thing. The only thing you can maybe talk about is uh, in relation to climate. If you want to live up in Wisconsin or Michigan where it's really cold all the time, that'd be the only thing, but that has nothing to do with governance. So he concludes by by alluding to the safeguard built into this provision in the situation of a treaty that only benefits some states rather than all, he remarks, all states will be equally represented in the Senate and their interests will be promoted with an equal degree of influence. So to corrupt this principle, it would require the president and two-thirds of the Senate to be complicit of such unworthy conduct. So next he states, and I think this is the very last quote here, yeah. So he states, and I quote, with respect to their responsibility, it is difficult to conceive how it could be increased. Every consideration that can influence the human mind, such as honors, such as honor, oaths, reputations, 
conscience, the love of country, and family affections and attachments afford security for their fidelity. In short, as the Constitution has taken the utmost care that they shall be men of talents and integrity, we have reason to be persuaded that the treaties they make will be as advantageous as all circumstances considered could be made. <clears throat> and so far as the fear of punishment and disgrace can operate, the motive to good behavior is amply afforded by the article on the next on the subject of impeachments. End quote. So this is the next paper is going to be talking about impeachments uh, in the Senate, I think. And that's going to be their power. The power of the Senate continued. Yeah, it's going to be their power against the president, I'm, I'm assuming. Yeah, and that's Alexander Hamilton. He writes the next one. So this one, you know, he kind of says, these people are going to have a love of country, fidelity to the Constitution, f fidelity to uh, the country, to the, to the men amongst them. And that's, I mean, that's really it for this one. This one, he kind of builds up the Senate. He says they're going to be people of utmost integrity. They're going to be accountable. Uh, you know, treaties are going to be a kind of a co-mixture of powers for safeguards against any usurpations. And that's really, that's really it for this one. So I greatly appreciate everyone tuning in. Uh, make sure you check out weekend, the weekend special current events. I have a lot of good stuff on there. A lot of videos, information. If you want to know what's going on in the country, some of this Israel stuff as well. It continues, uh, just, it continues. What did I read today? I read, read that, uh, I don't even know they blew up another building i don't know they took they took out someone a very high up general in hamas so they're really going for broke israel right now they they're taking out all their uh military adversaries or their extremist adversaries so i greatly appreciate everyone tuning in please like share subscribe drop the mic let people know about the podcast and i will see you all next time thank you Israel.